0: Welcome to Menno HealthCast, a production of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship in partnership with the Mennonite Incorporated. We're glad that you're joining us today and we invite you to give to the mission of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship to help continue the conversation about faith, service, peace, and justice in the context of healthcare. If you're personally interested in getting involved with Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship, Please go to our website, click on the link in the top right corner, or email us at info at menohealth.org. That's info at menohealth.org. We're also interested in your feedback and thoughts about the podcast. This is the fourth episode in our podcast series, Menos in Medicine. I'm your host, Joanne Hunsberger, a pediatric anesthesiologist in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm speaking with Linda Whitmer today at the Laurelville Mennonite Retreat Center in Western Pennsylvania during Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship's annual gathering. Linda's a nurse who spent 23 years living and serving with the Kekchi, the indigenous people of Guatemala, as a representative of both Mennonite Central Committee and Eastern Mennonite Missions. With the Kekchi, she focused on church programs and public health projects that were in large part initiated by the community. At Goshen College, she taught community health, transcultural nursing, health care for the poor, and served as adjunct professor located in Guatemala, where she offered an annual three-week course on doing theology in Latin America. She returned to the U.S., where she completed her Master of Divinity at Lancaster Theological Seminary and now is the director of the RN to BS Nursing Program at Eastern Mennonite University's extension site in Lancaster, PA, where she engages her students in understanding different cultural perspectives. I'd like to start the conversation and ask, what took you to Guatemala? Before I was even went to college,
1: I knew or I felt some kind of call to... Um, work overseas uh, to work in another culture. And I was most drawn to Latin America at that time. So uh, I decided to go to college for that specific purpose to go overseas. And I think I, I mean, I was drawn to working with people on the margins of society, those who have less access to, to health care. And what made you stay in Guatemala? Well, I went thinking that I would only be there three years and maybe, at the most, six, and I loved it. felt like home. I felt like I could accomplish more by staying there long term, and I could see the progress, where for the short term, in three years, you can't really see that much the effects of your work. But over the long term, over the long haul, building relationships, the trust that's built, um, I think it really made a difference in how uh,
0: effective I could be. How do you think you built those relationships?
1: Well, I spend a lot of time with the Kekchi. uh, Many of them would say, um, if you walk their paths, if you... um, eat with them in their homes, you know, if you're with them through, I would say, holy times of birth, death, uh, sickness, those are times when, you know, it's an important time for them. Sharing both, I think, sharing my life, but also, you know,
0: sharing their lives with me. And I felt like I learned a lot from them. How do you think your training to be a nurse prepared you for that time in Guatemala and for making those relationships? I think, I think that
1: the training at EMU put a deeper desire in, in me to be there. To I think they gave the tools to problem solve, not necessarily the skills I needed at the time because they were skills that nurses don't necessarily do. But I think that they gave uh, the tools to find the resources, to use the resources that I had to be creative. So I think in that way they prepared me. And I, I, I believe that the, the theology and the service, those kinds of things that were taught at EMU, were very instrumental in my
0: continuing on with the Kekchi Sometimes there's controversy about doing short term missions internationally. You led a three week May term class from Goshen College called Doing Theology in Latin America. How did you arrange that class to be respectful to the Ketchi that you loved so much?
1: Well, I I do. Uh, it's a real dilemma for me because I'm not very uh, positive about short-term missions. But I didn't see this three weeks course to be short-term missions. Uh, I think there's a difference between going to help and or going to learn, and that's what I saw as the purpose of these of uh, the term doing theology and. Latin America was to learn from the people, to learn about their culture, to experience some of their life, to raise awareness of some of the issues, uh, global issues, to learn about their theology. So it were I felt like it was an awareness raising, and perhaps it would touch people in a way that would make them either want to serve like with MCC, serve in another country, or that they would serve people in the margins in the United States. So I think that, you know, that that was the really the main purpose.
0: Can you tell me a bit about the Ketchi and who they are? Okay, so they
1: are one of 23 different groups in Guatemala that are descendants of the Mayas. They are one of the most isolated groups. They're the fourth largest. Uh, there are about 800,000 uh, Kekchi. They did not integrate into uh, the main culture like many of the other groups did, and they were not as exposed to North Americans or Western culture as some of the other groups in Guatemala were. One of the, the, Most of them worked on coffee plantations, and those coffee plantations were uh, brought in by the Germans. The Germans were asked to uh, raise coffee in in Guatemala, and so the government gave away the land and Since the Kikchi didn't really have land titles, uh, they took their land and uh, made coffee plantations and then the Kikchis became their servants and lived on the on the land there and served the land
0: owners. How did you go about learning their language?
1: There were two Wycliffe women who had written the grammar in, a, in lessons, and so the main way was to just spend time with the people and have an informant that went everywhere I went, talked told me what everything was and and then I also studied the, the grammar with a book that the Wycliffe translators had written. So it was basically just learning from talking with them. And what was your work there? I was sent there to train village health workers. First I felt like I had to learn what their health beliefs were and so the first year was just spending time with the people learning the culture, learning their cultural beliefs, how that affected health. And then after that, started to train the village health workers. Then later, the church, there was a Mennonite church there. They asked me to train uh, midwives. So that was the next thing. We trained village midwives, traditional midwives. And then later, the health workers said, well, would you train us to pull teeth so I had I had learned to pull teeth and I pulled thousands of teeth and then after a while I said I'm not going to do this anymore because you can't continue this work everything that I did I passed on to them and I wanted it to be able to continue so I just said I'm not going to do this anymore and they said well you can train us so I knew a dentist who had trained village dental workers in refugee camps in Thailand and some other areas, and so I wrote to him and asked him if he would come and, and teach uh, dental workers, and so he did, and he came twice, and I helped him, and then I wrote in Kekchi I wrote a manual. And then after a couple years, they said, well, now we need to learn how to make dentures, so I wrote to him again and said, "You know, would you be willing to teach them to make dentures?" And he did. And so he came back and taught them to make dentures, and they're still working today.
0: Who was it that came to you with these requests?
1: The um, leaders of the church and also the health workers themselves, because they were facing they were facing problems that they couldn't handle, and so so they asked for more more help in this area specifically midwives uh, several pastors lost their wives in childbirth and so they came to me and said you know couldn't you train local uh, traditional midwives because many of them were you know they were like a day uh, a days would be like a day of travel in a Jeep to get to the nearest hospital so if they had any problems
0: they wouldn't live can you tell me about the church that you were a part of there?
1: Um, so the first mission workers were under Eastern Mennonite Mission, and um, they started one, two, two churches themselves, one in a rural area and another in the town that um, I lived in. And from there, the church just grew itself, and they didn't plant any churches besides the, those first two many of the people felt empowered by learning to read scripture themselves empowered by the holy spirit they learned to read they and they just went out and told their neighbors and and that's how the church grew and now there's um probably about 75 or 80 churches
0: part of your teaching in the doing theology in latin america was about third world theology What do you think are some of the most important tenets of third-world theology? I think um,
1: the biggest thing to me was learning to listen to their interpretation of what they learned from the scripture. So it's listening to scripture interpretation through the eyes of the poor or the eyes of the marginal, the marginalized people. And which gives a different viewpoint than I had ever heard. And so I think that it was very important to me to, to learn that. And it was also empowering to them. They gained a greater self-concept. They saw themselves so as Jesus being on the side of the poor, or God being on the side of the poor, and the oppressed and so i think it gave them a sense of we are special people we are important to god
0: looking through the looking at the scripture through a third world theology is that what made them feel empowered like interpreting the scripture through the eyes of the poor you, you think that is that kind of what you were help, able to help them do well i think in some sense Yes, I think that they were able to
1: see themselves as loved. They were oppressed people by the the, the Spaniards who came and conquered them. And so I think that they felt like underdogs. Uh, many of them, yeah, even when we taught health workers, they would say, well, I didn't know a chee could learn this. I didn't know we could learn to read. I didn't know we could do this kind of thing and take care of our own people. and so I think that um, you know this gave them a a new self-concept, a new understanding that they are loved by God in a special way. And I think I came to believe that that you know that God is on the side of the poor and does really honor those who are marginalized in a very special way.
0: When you teach your RN to BS classes and you, do, you t- talk about cultural, cross-cultural interactions how do you bring that experience into the classroom? Well one of my favorite things is to take them into homes
1: so I take them to an Ethiopian home and I have her prepare a meal and then she tells about the culture and have refugees come to class and tell about tell their story, or um, undocumented people coming to class and telling their story. And somehow, I think if they listen to the stories and it becomes personalized, that they will it'll help transform their feelings about immigrants or about people from other cultures coming. And you know, maybe they can't speak the language right away, or their cultural practices are really different, and they don't understand them. Um, And they think they're weird. But this, I think, just listening to their stories then personalizes it and helps them to, to have a greater sensitivity to other cultures. I also take them to an Islamic center, and they do a lecture about their beliefs. But I think just, I mean, for some of them, they're scared to go. But, you know, experiencing love from and care from the the Muslim women who talk to us. You know, it changes their views on it's quite impactful, I think.
0: How do you think it makes them better nurses?
1: Well, certainly because they understand the culture better and so or at least they're going to be sensitive to any any other culture. And a lot of them though that will say that Probably that's the most important part of their, of their schooling at EMU, is that they learn to be sensitive to other cultures and that
0: it opened up a new understanding to them. So that's rewarding. I wonder if you could give us some insight into the current situation of persons from Latin America traversing to the Mexican-American border, especially with your experience in Guatemala.
1: Well, I was just recently in Guatemala, and um, it was the first time that I had ever heard. Everywhere I went, every family I talked to, they all knew somebody who was in the states. That had never was like a shock to me. I, that had never occurred before, and a lot of it has to do with uh, financially not being able to make it on small plots of land that they have. If they want to send their kids to school. You know, they need the money, and so they will sacrifice uh, being away. The men, particularly, will be sacrificed to be away from their family. And uh, I, I talked to one father who said, well, you know, if I get caught, at least I'll have a little bit of time to earn some money that I can send back to them. And then if they uh, deport me, well, that's okay. I've at least earned this amount of money for them for, to send my kids to school. There's also a lot of gang activity, violence, uh, drug problems. So all those kinds of things, I think, are what, why they are that why they want to go to the states.
0: Is the gang activity and the drug and violent activity is it affecting the Ketchi communities as much as it's affecting the communities in the major cities? I wouldn't
1: say that it affects them quite as much, but it does affect them and even in the small towns where I, it's a small town where I lived, and the one, there are three kind of towns close by where I lived, and they're all, they all have been affected by drug activity and gangs.
0: Now, the drug activity that's prevalent in Central America, is that a drug trafficking? The actual delivering of drugs to the states, or is it use as well as transportation? We talk about drug activity, but I don't
1: what does it really
0: mean well
1: it 's drug trafficking
0: for the most part,
1: but there is certainly more and more drug activity uh, within particularly among the young people they're using drugs in the city, so in a more recently uh, you see that they are using drugs as well as helping
0: to traffic the drugs and then that compounds the gang violence right. and right the death and the traumatization of those folks. Guatemala has a history of violence mm-hmm. and war. Can you just give me a little bit of that background?
1: Mm, that's, a long, that's a long history. 30 years of war and um, many 400 communities were wiped out off the earth. People, men, women, and children were killed. I think that kind of violence has caused post-traumatic stress disorder has caused people to how else to respond but to respond in violence and they haven't found ways to healthy ways to respond to to issues i think it's, yeah the war was a long war
0: and this was a civil war it was essentially a civil war, yeah in the 80s
1: uh, yeah 70s and 80s and it, it extended into the 90s in the '90s, there was a Remy project, which was the recuperation of the memory of those who had been hurt in the during the during the war. So, uh, this project sent out people to record what happened in the communities. And at that time, um, after all that research was gathered, and they've worked with those communities, they found that it was the army that did most of the killing in the 90s. The person who was responsible for that project, he was a priest. He was, when they gave the information back to the country, he was assassinated. So there are, there, and I think today there are still, there's still a lot of work to be done in healing from all the violence. There are people in the mass graves. They've dug up some of the mass graves, uh, they've had services for uh, and proper burials for for those people so that was one way of working at the healing but there's it's still i think the whole country has been traumatized by all that, all that's happened to them
0: you were involved with the beginning of the bridge of hope organization back in the 80s that's right can you tell me some about that organization
1: so when I came back from Guatemala after being there for 10 years, I wanted to work in public health, and there was no public health center in Lancaster, which is where I was planning to settle. But I went to Chester County and worked in a, um, my caseload was in Coatesville, which was a a small town, but it was between Philadelphia and New York, and there was a lot of drug traffic. There was, used to be a prosperous steel, uh, there was a prosperous steel company there, and it no longer was there, and so there were just lots of people, second, third generation people, didn't have jobs. So it was very depressed, and there was also a a Latino, large Latino population there, because there were mushroom farms, and they worked on the mushrooms. But it was during the Reagan era, and so that's when a lot of the funds were taken away from social services and so forth. And that was kind of the beginning of homeless, when the homeless population started really growing. I often was given, some of my caseload was in, with homeless shelters. And so I would follow women through their pregnancies to delivery and then a year after their delivery. And so I went to lots of shelters and they would only be there for 30 days and then they had to go somewhere because they were only for 30 days and maybe they went to another shelter and so I'd go to that shelter and then maybe they'd find some place to stay for a while but we're often back in a shelter again so shelters didn't feel to me like where it was it felt to me like it was a band-aid and that you know wasn't really fixing any problem so the shelter director and I would have these long discussions about, you know, there's got to be another solution to this. We ha- There's got to be some way to help break that cycle. So we uh, formed a small group of women who we talked to them about it. And so we get together regularly to talk about the issues that we were facing and um, to pray. And so uh, then it was in... Church one Sunday morning, and the, our pastor was uh, talking about the story of Nehemiah and building, building the walls, building. Uh, when they saw the vision of restoring their, the walls, of Jerusalem, and so he said, "Does anybody have a vision for a project?" I stood up and said, "Yeah, I have a vision for something to to help." homeless women and children and that I would really like if this is really a calling I would like the support of the congregation to affirm this calling that both Sandy was part of this other director of the shelter was part of this congregation. Right away people stood up and said we affirm this and we will help you uh, get started. So we started a steering committee and later became a board and now it's a national organization and I only had the first two years with the organization and then I went to Goshen College (laughs) and started teaching there and then I returned to Guatemala. So I don't really feel, I just feel like I did planted the seed and somebody else took it from there and, and it bloomed. So it must have been the right time for that to happen. So it's an exciting project, I think. But I don't feel like I had anything. I just had one little tiny piece of getting it started. And we kind of took the model that I had seen from MCC where churches would form a care group around a um, a, f- a family or a woman with children and they would help them to become independent and gave them a home for a year, supported them, and then they were off on their own. So we didn't really need money for houses because
0: churches were taking on one, one family at a time. What can the Anabaptist health care provider add to Western healthcare. What does the Anabaptist medical professional have to offer the larger medical community that's different from other providers, secular providers or providers from other communities? It's a big question.
1: I mean, I do, think, I do think we have something to offer because we believe in an upside-down kingdom, right? Upside-down values. So big business is what the what the healthcare system is right now. It's big corporation. So I think that there, that we we have something to offer doing something that would be creative and go against the corporate healthcare system. But I also think we have a role in policies. You know, we can try to influence at all levels, grassroots to public policy as well. What's next for you? I'm I'll, I'm planning to retire in a year at least from as as far as the director I may do some adjunct. But I just wrote a grant with a with another person, a social worker, and our vision is to educate congregations leaders in congregations, lay leaders, about mental illness and how to support people in their congregations who are suffering from mental illness. So that's my new passion. Perhaps it comes from my own congregation, because we recently just did an assessment of the needs of our own, of the congregation that I'm a part of, which is Laurel Street Mennonite Church, and the top priority was mental illness. And um, the youth, and the, they're the ones that, that spoke the loudest about needing support and uh, that, that we should be involved in doing something for uh, caring for people with mental illness. So that kind of spurred me on to say, okay, uh, but we can do it on a broader basis than this. That will be my next th- three year project. Because the grant lasts for three years. So I I don't know what will happen from there. But, yeah, that's one thing I want to be involved in.
0: Excellent. I look forward to hearing how your project goes the next time we meet at our annual gathering here. Or maybe sooner. Okay. Thank you for joining us for our Menno HealthCast, brought to you by the Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship and the Mennonite Incorporated. To find out more about Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship, go to our website at menohealth.org. That's menohealth, one wordorg Become a member today and keep informed about our programs. For interested students and trainees, check out the student elective term, SET Grant Program. Your financial support really does help make possible this production, our webinars, student grants, and our gatherings. Musical credits go to Paul Schlitz. Editing and production credits to Eugene Stavanis. And I'm your host, Joanne Huntsberger. Please join us again next time.